right you have. We would be honored if you would join us. What's happening, Starburst Seekers and Nebula Nomads? We are spiraling into part five of the spellbinding Death Troopers tale, right here on Star Wars Audio Archives, the most horrifying Star Wars podcast on the web. And guiding you through this horrifying quest is yours truly, me, Kyle, your host on this special Halloween Star Wars series. Quick question, have you ever dreamt of a lightsaber duel on top of a moving Star Destroyer? If you have, you're not alone. That's just a hint of the cosmic adventures awaiting for us today. So strap in and get ready for a journey wilder than Chewbacca's hairdo on a windy day. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to it. When Jareth Sartoris opened his eyes, he was still strapped inside the escape pod. His skull felt like it had been split down the middle with a gaffy stick. And his right leg was twisted around sideways, pinned down by the partially collapsed front panel. Cautiously, with great effort, he managed to extract it, sliding his knee up and rotating the ankle slowly, stealing himself with a sharp slash of pain and not feeling it. Nothing broken. He breathed in, exhaled a sigh of relief, his senses still coming back to him, a little at a time. Was he in space? How long had he been blacked out? He glanced down at the pod's navigational display and checked the counter, still ticking off minutes and seconds since his departure from the barge. According to the readout, he'd ejected almost four hours earlier, which meant he'd been unconscious since... He turned his head and looked out the shattered viewport. Then he remembered. The pod had ejected from the purge as planned, leaving the Longo brothers standing there with matching looks of anguish stamped across their faces. The slight twinge that Sartorius had felt at that moment had actually caught him by surprise. Had they really expected that he'd take them with him? No, of course not. Imperial Corrections had a saying, there are no children here. They were inmates, convicts, nothing less than enemies of the Empire, and whatever had happened between him and their father, Sartorius had already started thinking about Longo's death in the vaguest of generalities, had nothing to do with anything now. Still, that voice spoke up within him, faint but implacable. You killed their dad, and now you're leaving them to die. Okay, so what? The galaxy was a hard place to grow up, Sartorius' own father, a petty thief and death-stick addict, had beaten him savagely throughout his childhood, sometimes stopping only when he was afraid he'd killed the boy. One night when Jareth was 16, his dad had come after him with a rusty torque bludgeon. For the first time, the boy had stood his ground, ripped the weapon away from him, and bashed in his father's skull. He'd never forget the old man's face as he died. His expression of abject bewilderment as if he couldn't understand why his son had turned on him. Afterward, Jareth dragged the body out of the hovel they shared and abandoned it in an alleyway. The local law enforcement would simply assume the old man fell victim to the latest of his countless bad decisions. The next day, Jareth had lied about his age, joined up with the Empire, and never looked back. To this day, Sartorius had never fathered any children of his own, none that he knew of, anyway and that was a mercy. Throughout his adult life, he'd rarely wasted a thought on the roaring, chaotic creature that had once called himself his father, let alone the prospect of his own fatherhood. 
but as the pod blasted off from the prison barge, leaving Trigg and Kale Longo behind, Sartorius realized he'd been remembering the old man more vividly than he had in years. In fact, remembering was too sentimental a term for it. It was almost as if Gilly's Sartorius were sitting next to him, beaming in approval at the way his son, after a lifetime of misdeeds, had finally lived up to his own full destiny. Just because Jareth Sartorius never spawned offspring, it hadn't stopped him from relegating another man's sons to permanent darkness. He'd been thinking all of these things four hours ago, when he'd realized something was wrong before the klaxons started blaring inside the escape pod. Something inside the guidance system had gone seriously wrong. Rather than spiraling off into space, he had felt its trajectory curving back upward, pitching around on its side, rising up alongside of the barge. He'd stared up through the viewport, and then he'd seen it overhead, the open maw of the Star Destroyer's docking bay descending from above as the pod rose up into it. A tractor beam, he'd thought, as the shadows of the hangar engulfed him. That's why we couldn't keep going. Even with the thrusters repaired, there was a tractor beam turned on. He remembered thinking that at a little over 200 meters, the prison barge was too big to be pulled inside the hangar, but the destroyer could have locked on after they had docked, holding it there with the tower connecting them. By the time the engineers figured out what was going on, it had probably been too late. As the pod swung up inside the bay, he'd felt himself swiveling sidelong, then a lurch and an abrupt bone-jarring smash. The pod sank a little, metal squealing against metal as if pinned between two larger objects, and then the sides began to crumple inward. Sartoris's leg gave a loud bray of pain as the navigation panel caved in around it. Everything jolted forward again. His head snapped face first and hit something on impact. The last thing he'd glimpsed before blacking out was the vision of his father, smiling beside him. Now that he'd regained his bearings, Sartorius released the shoulder restraints and took in a deep breath, shoving all doubt aside. He was alive, and that was all that mattered. Switching the internal locking system to manual, he bent his leg and shot it forward to kick out the door. It fell off its hinges, waffled through the air, then disappeared. A moment later, he heard it clatter distantly to the floor. He stuck his head out and looked around. The pod had lodged between two other ships, an old X-Wing fighter and an upended TIE fighter lying on one solar array wing. Lucky for him, the pod had landed hatch up. Otherwise, he would have been trapped in here permanently, imprisoned between two icons of the galactic power struggle. The notion of starving to death inside the pod, beating his shoulder against the hatch until he was too weak to move, didn't allow him to appreciate the irony of such a death. Lowering himself, he stepped over onto the X-Wing and paused a moment before dropping to the floor, looking around the hangar. It was exactly the way he remembered it, mostly desolate, with a handful of abducted ships strewn out across this end. Sartorius moved forward, mindful of his sore ankle, taking his time so he wouldn't slip and make things worse. The last time he'd passed through here, he'd ordered the rest of the boarding party onward without pausing for close inspection. But now he wandered among the vessels with the sharp eyes of a man evaluating his resources. Back in his early days, they'd joked about the pilots who flew these smaller ties because of the high mortality rate on such missions. They called them coffin jockeys. Gazing up, Sartorius could see how the hatches and canopies had been ripped open. 
sometimes with such force that they dangled on their hinges. He wondered if these particular coffin jockeys had been fighting their way out, or if some unknown predator from the outside had been trying to get in. What sort of predator? It's deserted in here, remember? As if in answer, a high, frantic chorus of screams rang out across the hangar, ripping a hole through the silence. It was so unexpected that Sartorius actually jumped and felt the skin on his back bristling upward over his shoulders and down his arms. His scalp abruptly felt too tight on his skull. For an instant, he stood perfectly straight and still, feeling a leaden sense of profound and unreasonable terror bulking down in the pit of his stomach, and looked across the hangar but couldn't see anything. Another mutated blast of screams, this one louder. Straight out of childhood, another vision of his father flashed through his mind, for no good reason at all, the old man smacking his lips. The death sticks had always given him dry mouth. Sartorius never forgot the moist, soft smacking sound his father made as he slipped into his room to deliver the nightly beating. Get a hold of yourself, he muttered, heart thudding against his sore ribs, unaware that he was even speaking aloud. Right now. After, then, the scream came yet again, this time seeming to emanate from everywhere at once. It was cycling up and down, bouncing off the walls of the hangar like a living thing hunting for food. Sartorius whirled around, now close to screaming himself. He couldn't see anything. The screams, there were more of them now, a cyclonic outcry of rage, kept rising up, filling the hollow docking bay with ear-shattering din. He wished he could have convinced himself that it was some kind of alarm, a leaky airlock, anything but what it was. A cacophony of human voices. His eyes widened further, starved for input and seeing nothing. The gray, crepuscular reaches of the main hangar just went on and on. An equation for which there was no final quotient. It occurred to him that they'd never found out what happened to the other boarding party, the ones that had disappeared up here. The screams he heard now didn't sound like anything he'd ever heard, except perhaps in his worst childhood nightmares. They were the screams of the dead, his mind babbled. Corpses who didn't want to stay buried. And they sounded hungry. Suddenly, he wanted to run. Where? That was when the shooting started. The first time she heard the blasters, Zahara jumped back away from the shaft on animal reflex. Then, conscious thought took over, and she went back and grabbed Kale under the arms, dragging him away from the shaft. As she pulled him across the hangar floor, the weight of his damaged body sagged sideways in her hands, head lolling. But she saw that his eyes were partially open, a pinpoint of lucidity still buried deep inside there somewhere. Shooting, Kale managed. Why are they? His eyelids lifted a little, awareness dawning over his features, and he frowned. His mouth went up and down, trying to shape more words, a question she couldn't hear over the noise. She pulled him along faster, running backwards so she could keep an eye on the shaft. At that moment, the first bolt of blaster fire pierced the docking shaft's outer shell. She simultaneously heard and felt it recoiling through the durasteel floors, a sizzling crack that left a black gash in the wall of the tower like a crooked idiot grin, admitting a tiny puff of smoke. Then another explosion burst through it, and another. The smell of cooked metal already wafting through, the ozone smell and acrid smoke that she associated with broken machinery. 
There was another series of blasts, even bigger, some heavier gauge artillery, followed by a swarm of shrapnel spitting through the air in front of her face. She kept moving backward, not looking away. The hole in the shaft was big enough now that she could see them inside the shaft, leering out at her as their hands gripped the hot, twisted durasteel and tried to peel it back. They had packed the shaft with their bodies, prison inmates still in their uniforms, human and non-human alike, guards, administrators, no longer segregated, but jammed together with a pressing, eager confederacy they'd lacked in life. She could already see their faces, sagging lips, wrinkled noses, Dead yellow eyes lit up with a kind of stupid animal cunning. A scaly green arm came out clutching a blaster rifle and fired a shot blindly across the hangar, the red streak fading off in the distance, slamming into something too far off to register. More blasters fired inside the tube, widening the hole they'd created, making it longer and bigger on all sides. Be careful, you can't see where you're going. If you go too fast, even as she thought it, her feet tangled over each other, and she went down hard, Kale's body landing on top of her. Go, go, get up, now! She jumped back up, groping for Kale, struggling to haul him off the floor, and made the mistake of looking up one more time. They had started crawling out. The blaster-twisted hole they'd created in the shaft was jagged, and they cut themselves along the way, twisted spikes of durasteel slashing their uniforms and gouging deep into the pouched sacks of rotten innards that were their bodies. One of them, a guard whose face she vaguely recognized from his visits to the infirmary, was instantly impaled and hung there flailing while the others scrambled over him. In her arms, Kale groaned, tried to straighten his body, writhing around to look at her and then fell slack again. He was trying to talk to her, she realized. Despite his injuries, he'd actually found the strength to shout, but she still couldn't hear him over the blasters. She pulled him faster, moving blindly, taking shorter, quicker steps. His weight was slowing her down, and now the first few of the things were already making their way toward her. One of them was Gat. His once familiar face contorted into a hideously hungry grin. I am going to eat you, that grin said and you are going to taste good to me. There was a brief moment of silence, an incidental lull, and although Zahara's ears were ringing, she realized what Kale was shouting. Let me go! No, she said, not concerned with whether he heard her or not. The important thing was that she'd said it to herself. She wasn't leaving him here. In front of her, perhaps six meters away, three dead guards and maybe a dozen inmates paused, as if acclimating to their new environment. Then they broke into a loose, shambling, open-mouthed run, straight at her, arms swinging, legs clanging, firing all the way. They were already getting better at it. The shots were actually getting close to hitting her now. Drop me, Kale screamed. Just go, run! Shut up, she thought. Her adrenaline hit hard, erupting through her skull base, and her backward run became a backward sprint, her legs not even feeling like a part of her now, paddling the floor beneath her with a crazy, blurring speed. The things were receding, trying to run, but not as fast as she was. She could outrun them all, even dragging Kale behind her, she... There was another metallic jolt, and Kale jerked violently in her arms and fell still. She stopped running, aware of a damp warmness spreading through her lower torso and legs. Everything below her waist was soaked in blood. She looked down. The right half of Kale's face was gone, a pulped half-moon. The broken skull protruded from his scalp like shattered terracotta, the jawbone dangling crookedly on one hinge. 
He'd taken the shot that would have torn straight through her abdomen. His good eye rolled up, fogging over. Already she smelled the terrible, sweet odor of cauterized hair and skin. As his head swung down, Zahara saw that the left side of his face was almost completely untouched, except for a single freckle of scarlet under his eye. There was a muffled snarl, and she looked up again. In front of her, the things were moving faster now, motivated by fresh bloodshed. Zahara dropped him and fled. They were lost. Trig knew it. It had happened when they were running blindly from the other side of the hatchway that Han had blasted shut. Nobody had spoken up and said which way to go. They'd just gone. Sprinting as fast as they could, away from the scratching, screaming things they'd left behind. They'd run for what felt like whole kilometers. Impossible, he knew. But the subjectivity would not be argued with. Eventually, too exhausted even to breathe, they'd slowed down, gasping for air and still not speaking. That was the first time Trigg thought Han had somehow gotten turned around and was now leading them in the wrong direction. Maybe back toward those things in the ceiling. Maybe. Trigg cut the thought off, refusing to give it any further credence. Better to concentrate on where they were headed. The long corridors and main transit chats had long since become identical. Air exchangers and manifolds all starting to look the same, and when they arrived at yet another bank of turbo lifts that looked just like the last set, Trigg couldn't keep it to himself anymore. We're going in circles, he said. Han didn't say anything, didn't even glance back at him. He was looking back and forth down the upcoming nexus of concourses, running the options in his head. Trigg cleared his throat. Did you hear me? I said... You think you can get us to the command bridge, kid? Han snapped. His eyes looked hollow and deep-set. Be my guest. I'm just saying. He pointed the way that Han appeared to be favoring. This doesn't feel right. Yeah? Well, we're on a Star Destroyer being chased by the living dead. None of this feels right. Han rubbed his hand over his face, and when he lowered his palm and looked at Chewbacca, his expression showed a deeper gradation of doubt. We came back from that way, right? <coughs> the Wookiee gave a mournful, uncertain groan. Great. You're supposed to be the one with a keen sense of direction. I think if we just take this turbo lift, you know, up, Trigg started. We're almost to the conning tower. Han squatted down and touched his fingertips to the deck below their feet. You feel how the floor is vibrating? Trigg nodded tentatively. We're probably standing right on top of the primary power generator. Han cocked a thumb off to the right. It's this way and then straight back. I can feel it. We're almost there right through this hatchway. He palmed the switch on the wall. It hummed, the entire platform reverberating even harder under their feet. And a huge space gaped in front of them. Almost simultaneously, they all took a step back, staring down into the void. Sickish green and yellow lights illuminated it from above, and Trigg leaned slightly forward, craning his neck as far down as he dared. But he couldn't see the full dimensions of it. As his eyes began to adjust, he saw they were standing at a precipice, overlooking a deep cavernous chamber that for a moment appeared to be nothing less than the atmospheric null set of space itself. He realized that his lungs were aching for air and allowed himself to inhale a shaky breath. See? Hans said, a little weakly. Told you we were at the top. Trigg stared down at the massive cylindrical shape, only half visible, so far down, their voices sounding very small against the opening. 
What is that down there? He asked. Main engine turbine, probably. It's big. It's a big ship, kid. The Empire likes them that way. Han pointed to the other side, voice solidifying with all kinds of manufactured confidence. See that square service shaft on the other side? That's probably the main lift platform up to the bridge. Trigg squinted. He couldn't see across, and he doubted that Han could either. His attention kept getting sucked downward in the direction of the silent turbine. What would it be like to fall that far down? He would have a long time to scream, that was for sure. One endless, diminishing shriek as the darkness swallowed you up. He wondered what might happen if the lower part of the Star Destroyer was open, and you fell through it. If it was possible to drop straight down into the hostile, icy bath of the galaxy itself. How do we get across? Han pointed. You're looking at it. Trigg frowned. The catwalk in front of them was so narrow that at first, he thought it was just an extra contour of the wall. It ran along the edge, stretching out as far as he could see, presumably ending on the other side. There's no guardrail. Yeah, well, beggars can't be choosers. There's got to be a regular way of getting over there. I'm sure there is, Han said. Me? I don't plan on standing around out here any longer than I have to. Trigg thought back to the turbo lift he'd suggested they'd take a few turns back. No doubt, that had been the usual means of getting to the bridge. But did he want to go back there alone? Could he even find it at this point? He glanced at Chewbacca, but the big Wookiee seemed unconcerned, and Han was already stepping out onto it. He put his back to the wall and crept forward, keeping his palms flattened on either side to maintain his balance. Just keep your head up, and don't look down and you'll be fine. He jerked his head at the Wookiee. Well, what are you waiting for? With an unhappy yawp, Chewbacca stepped out after him, and Trigg knew that it was his turn. He thought that Han was probably right about the conning tower. In his headstrong, cocksure way, he did seem uncannily well-informed about the general layout of the destroyer. But as Trigg approached and put his foot on the catwalk, he felt his guts go loose and turn to water. His legs felt so weightless that his knees trembled all the way up to his thighs, and when his palms started sweating, he was abruptly sure that this was how he was going to die, falling down into the pit. Any remaining sense of balance and equilibrium fled. I can't, he mumbled. Han turned and looked at him. He could feel the man's eyes on him, making his face blaze up hot all the way to his hairline. Come on, we don't have time for a pep talk here. Trigg tried to swallow, but his throat was too gummy. He forced the words out. There's gotta be another way. Maybe I'll go back to the turbo lift. Alone? Han asked. Then I'll wait for you here. Once you get the engines going again... He bobbed his head up and down, selling the idea to himself. I'll just meet you back here, okay? Han looked at him one last time. The distance between them was already wide enough that Trigg couldn't make out the expression on his face but some small and shameful part of him guessed it was probably a mixture of exasperation and maybe a little contempt. But if there was contempt, it wasn't evident in the man's voice. All right, he said. We'll come back for you. Then he and Chewbacca turned back in the opposite direction and continued to pick their way along the catwalk. Trigg stood staring at the two shadowy forms advancing deeper into the shadows until he wasn't sure he saw them anymore. Then they were gone, and he was standing there all alone. 
he'd never hated himself more than he did at that moment. It struck him that Kale would have gone out there without question, that his own life had been full of these failures of nerve, large and small, and that this was probably the most recent of many to come. He stood at the edge of the abyss, for what felt like a very long time, waiting to hear Han call out, We're here, or we made it, from somewhere far off in the distance, but no such sound came to him. Maybe they fell, a craven voice inside him whispered. But if they had, wouldn't he have heard them scream? He sat down by the open hatchway, a careful distance from the edge, and stared down into it listening to the sounds of his own breathing, the steady thud of his pulse. Eventually, he began to hear sounds from down inside the chamber, low rustling noises from far below where he couldn't see. It's them. They're down there. He bounced to his feet, more startled by the thought than the popping sounds that his knees had made, and tried to look deeper into the pit. He'd heard that Star Destroyers carried a crew of 8,000 or more. Suppose they'd all been infected. They would nest somewhere, wouldn't they? A place together in the dark? Maybe this was where the ones in the overhead ventilation shaft had come from. Where they'd been waiting. And they were headed forward in the direction of the main hangar, as if summoned thereby. He turned around, struck by the feeling that he was being watched. It wasn't just a feeling. At the far end of the shaft, ten meters away, a face was peering at him out of the half-light in three-quarter profile. Even at this distance, Trigg recognized it instantly, though it took a moment to get the name out from his shock-numbed lips. Kale? His brother regarded him from the side, without turning his head, as if in a trance. Then he reached out and pushed a button on the wall, and a door opened in front of him. Kale, wait! Don't! Kale stepped through the door and disappeared. Trigg chased after him, running back up the concourse, staggering a little, feeling pins and needles creeping up through his lower legs from all the time that he'd sat motionless. Had he really been waiting there that long? His knees had the trembling, wrung-out feeling that made him wonder if they might actually buckle underneath him. He got to the hatchway that his brother had opened and pressed the switch. The door that hissed open wasn't as big as the one that Han had discovered above the turbine. It was just a normal hatchway and that somehow made him feel better, too. He stepped through it. Kale, it's... His voice broke off with a choke. The chamber was even darker than the concourse he'd left behind. At first glance, it appeared as big as the abyss he'd refused to cross, but this was some type of main refuse depository. A mountain of trash rose up to the ceiling, and the fetid brown excremental stink simmering off its peaks was beyond nauseating. Trigg clamped his hand over his mouth and looked around through watering eyes, trying to keep from gagging. He couldn't see his brother in here, but Kale had just come inside, seconds earlier. Kale? He said again, strangely hesitant to shout out in here. It's me. What are you doing in here? Behind him, the hatch sealed shut. It wasn't trash. Trigg came to this realization as he took another step toward the mountain, hoping to find some trace of Kale around the other side. That was when his toe struck something soft and yielding, and when he glanced down, he saw it was a human leg. Very slowly, he looked up. 
The leg was connected to a torso, covered up by another, and another. The pile growing in front of him, comprising what he realized was hundreds of dismembered corpses, heads, arms, legs, and whole bodies, bare bones, many of them still dressed in rotten imperial uniforms, and incomplete stormtrooper armor. The pile rose up to the ceiling. Details leapt out at him from everywhere. The bodies had been mangled, like parts at an abattoir. Some of them in handcuffs and manacles, others hacked recklessly to pieces, still others looking partially devoured. Whole gobbets of flesh gnawed off. Many of the parts were bloated to the point where the skin itself had begun to split open like sausages, and Trigg realized he was standing in a tacky puddle of whatever had leaked out of them to coat the floor. He felt the room start to spin. A scream ballooned in his throat and died there snuffed out by his own inability to open his lips and release it. Instead, he stumbled backward, trying not to look at what was in front of him, all around him, wanting it not to be there, but unable to get away from it. Somewhere behind him was the door he'd come through, the hatchway that would get him out of here, but he couldn't find the switch to activate it. He began slapping the walls blindly at random, pounding them, and nothing changed. At last, the seal broke in his throat, and he let out a shriek, a combination of help and kale. And that was when he heard the sounds. A soft, moist, rustling noise from inside the mountain. Bodies shifted, shoved aside, and rearranged by something within. And then he saw the thing come burrowing out. First the white head. Maggot white. Then the rest of it, slithering through to emerge outward on the floor. It rose to its feet, a figure in dripping, ragged clothes and a blood-stained stormtrooper helmet staring at him. The black polarized lenses of the helmet were streaked and filthy, clotted with slime and gore. The breath filter had been broken off on one side, and Trigg caught a glimpse of the scaly, infected throat of the thing underneath it. There was blood caked around the mouthpiece, and it occurred to him that the thing might possibly have eaten its way out. It staggered toward him. Trigg backed away, immediately tripped and fell. Jumping up, lunging sideways, he started running around the edge of the mountain. He imagined that he heard the thing coming after him, but it might have just been his own heart hammering in his ears. He didn't dare look back, but he could feel it there, growing closer, a steadily intensifying presence like pressure buildup behind his eyeballs and chest cavity, pushing him onward, faster. The room spun around him. Trigg jerked his head right and left, the door, Wherever it had been, was utterly lost to him now. Fear had robbed him of all sense of direction. He didn't even remember where he'd come from. As he bolted around the edge of the pile, lunging over three corpses that appeared to have been bundled together, wrists and ankles bound with cords, something caught his eye from up above. A glint of light. Looking up, he saw the open ventilation shaft in the ceiling, at least 10 or 15 meters up, maybe more. He finally stopped and looked back saw the thing in the trooper helmet coming around behind him. It was moments away. This time, Trigg didn't give himself time to think. He started climbing. It was even worse than he'd expected. The huge pile of dismembered parts and severed heads made up a loosely knit, constantly shifting terrain, moving and tumbling down as he clawed his way up and over it. The stench only seemed to thicken, as he uncovered submerged levels of decay that hadn't yet been exposed to air. Struggling against his gag reflex was a non-stop battle, one he didn't always win. 
and the wobbling sensation of continuous near nausea only made climbing more difficult. He tried to focus on the vent shaft, forcing himself to think only of getting out. Every few seconds, though, he did look back. He couldn't help it. The thing in the helmet was climbing up after him. It crawled with the steady relentlessness of something out of one of his nightmares. And in fact, even in the depths of his own scrambling climb, Trigg couldn't help but flash back to the voice of Orr Miss from the cell next to theirs. How he had promised to come for him and his brother. Was that an undead version of Miss behind him now? How had it gotten here to this part of the destroyer before him? And what had it been doing inside this heap of human rubble? None of those questions even rose into his mind, only that it had followed him here to satisfy whatever undying urge drove it forward. Rage. Murder. Hunger. Something moved underneath him in the mountain. It's just another body part. Don't think about it. Don't let it... He felt a scabby, clay-cold hand reaching up out of the pile to seize his ankle. Trigg let out a painful squeal of fright and wrenched his leg free almost losing his balance and falling. He was struck by the vision of his small, helpless frame bouncing back down the slope of corpses as hands and arms and mouths lunged out, ripping off pieces of his flesh until they'd finally added his own bleeding carcass to the mountain. Instead, he climbed faster, forcing himself to dig in, yanking himself upward, dumping down bodies as he went. He was close enough to the top now that he could actually see inside the vent, the oversized duct that had been exposed there. Go. Just go. With what felt like enormous effort, he thrust his entire body upward. His brain had shut down completely at this point. He no longer smelled the room or even truly felt its awful, gelid presence sticking to him. He was aware only of what lay ahead and how much he needed to get there. And the last few moments, as he got to the top of the pile, left no imprint in his memory whatsoever. They might as well have happened to someone else entirely. A stranger. Consciousness snapped back through him as his fingers scraped cold metal. The blessed solidity of the ductwork's outer rim. And he levered his upper body through it with a gasp, jerked his legs up behind him, and only then allowed himself to breathe. The vent was not much bigger than his shoulders, but it was large enough. Trigg looked around in a kind of mild hysteria. His heart was slamming, trying to smash a hole through his chest, the muscles in his throat working up and down wildly. I'm going to start bawling again. Well, go ahead and cry. I suppose you've earned it. But he realized his eyes were dry. At last, at the top of a pile of human bodies, he had arrived at a place beyond tears. There was a whistling, breathing noise below him. And when he looked down, he saw that the thing in the trooper's helmet was still climbing up the mountain of bodies. Trigg looked back and forth through the open duct. Then, he picked a direction and began to crawl. Across the main hangar, Sartorius watched dark figures moving toward him. He'd first seen them coming right after all the shooting had died down. Only a handful at first, then more, now dozens. Traveling en masse, a single organism made up of countless smaller components. They were close enough now that he could make out individual faces. Men he'd worked with for years on the prison barge. Guards he'd called by their first names. Soldiers who had followed his command with the utmost unquestioning loyalty. Prisoners who had once shuddered in fear at his passage. They traveled together now. Their swollen, disease-ravaged bodies pressing against one another. Death as the final brotherhood. 
they were coming for him. Behind him, there was a sharp clank of metal on metal. A low, collective groan escaped the shadows, deep and ravenous, and Sartorius spun around and looked through the captured ships to catch a flicker of movement beneath the X-Wing. Somehow they had slunk around behind him, too. He could see them down there, huddled in the shadows, watching him. Where did they come from? That was lesson one from Imperial Correction's playbook. One you never forgot. Never turn your back on the cons. Now Sartorius realized it was too late. The certainty of his death filled his belly like a big gulp of contaminated ice water. Droplets of sweat began to trickle down his spine, creeping between his shoulder blades and down into the waistband of his pants. The figures in front of him had jerked closer, seeming to advance in the interstitial space between moments, like footage from which the transitions had been removed. Their eyes never left his, and there was a slinking, primitive slyness to their movement. He wondered if they were still sizing him up, or if they just derived some atavistic pleasure watching him squirm. Within seconds, it wouldn't matter. They'd be close enough to launch themselves at him and tear him apart. They could even shoot him now if they wanted. They were all carrying blasters. The things behind him hooted out a scream. The inmates and guards in front of him screamed back, a call in response. Sartorius saw ropey strands of drool swinging from their mouths, human and non-human alike. There was a group of Wookiee prisoners with what looked like whole waterfalls of saliva pouring down between their fangs and slopping over their chins, soaking their fur. They looked like they'd eat him alive instead of blasting him. Maybe they preferred their meat uncooked. Come on then, he said grimly. What are you waiting for? As if awaiting the invitation, they broke ranks and charged, and Sartorius, who up till that moment had no idea what his next move would be, looked around at the abandoned X-Wing and grabbed the fighter's wing, lifting himself up and onto it. He made his way with a jouncing, bandy-legged run up the wing and toward the cockpit canopy, pivoted and dropped down into the pilot's seat, reaching up to try to seal it shut, but the canopy was broken and wouldn't close. Within seconds, every flaw in his reckless plan became glaringly apparent. He could already feel both groups of the things moving below the X-Wing, their thudding collective strength and hunger surging as they rocked the fighter back and forth underneath him, trying to flip it over, while others climbed up the nose cone in front of him. The three Wookiee prisoners he'd glimpsed earlier had already taken hold of the canopy and were trying to rip it loose. Or maybe just haul themselves up high enough to attack him where he sat. He could picture their three woolly bodies hunched over the stump of his exposed torso, ripping and tearing whatever was left inside the kettle of blood that had once been the X-Wing's cockpit. For the first time, his eyes flashed down at the avionics display. The instrument panel held the milky glow of sleeping electronics, but it was brightening slowly now, as if activated by his arrival. Just above the throttle, the green targeting scope blinked steadily, and Sartorius saw switches for weapons activation, laser cannons, and proton torpedoes coming online. From above, several hands reached down at once and sank their claws into his neck. He could smell them now, the infected Wookiees, the salivating bronchial snorts of their hunger as their breath drew closer. Wet, hot saliva dribbled down his face, and he felt the press of something sharp and hard. Sartorius squeezed the trigger. His whole world jolted backward. The laser bolt burst from both sets of cannons at once. A blinding muzzle flash that vaporized the mob of inmates in front of him even as it threw him into reverse. The Wookiees that had been reaching for his throat disappeared, jerked away with a howl of anger and shock. 
and Sartorius realized the X-Wing was still skidding, propelled along the hangar floor by the recoil. It all ended abruptly with a jarring crash, the thrust engines of the ship hammering into something even bigger than itself, probably the hangar wall. He lunged up and out of the seat and saw he'd collided with an Imperial landing craft, a Sentinel-class shuttle that looked like it had been sucked in by the tractor beam and dropped flat on the deck. There's an emergency hatch here somewhere. Where is it? He vaulted onto the shuttle's hull, ran up, and felt the craft lurch underneath him. They were already down there, waves of them, and that screaming noise was cycling up again. When they hit the underside of the shuttle, he lost his balance completely and fell forward through the hatch. What came next was blackness. With a silent groan, Sartorius opened his eyes. He was lying on his back in the shuttle's darkened cabin, the corrugated steel pressing against his neck. Outside the reinforced durasteel hull, he could hear them faintly scratching, slapping, pounding. There was a brief pause. Something much heavier slammed into it, an explosion, blasters again, he thought wearily, and wanted nothing more than to just black out. Did you bring them with you? A voice croaked in the darkness. Sartorius jumped a little and stared up at several sets of eyes peering down at him. As his vision adapted, he realized he was looking at a group of men in ill-fitting Imperial uniforms leaning over him from seats mounted to either side of the shuttle's cabin walls. Reacting without thinking, he jerked backward and tried unsuccessfully to scramble away. It's all right, the voice said. We're not infected. Sartorius examined them more closely, his heart still wedged up in the tight pocket of his throat. Even amid everything else that was happening outside, the appearance of the men remained a shock. Their starvation-ravaged faces were little more than skulls with parchment-yellow skin stretched over them, lips drawn back in permanent sneers, cheekbones bulging grotesquely outward. One of them attempted what Sartorius supposed was a smile. I'm Commander Gorister, the man said, clearly waiting for Sartorius to introduce himself. When he didn't, Gorister sank back with a sigh and continued. <sighs> From what's going on out there, I can only surmise that you ended up here the same way we did. Sartorius grimaced. Something like that? Gorister started to say something and a sharp slamming noise cut off his words. Outside the ship, the blaster fire continued, smashing and pounding against the armored hull. The commander waved it away with scarcely a glance. They'll give up after a moment, he said. It's really just a reflex on their part. Sartorius raised an eyebrow. Reflex? Hmm. Certain learned behavior patterns are difficult to unlearn, even when grossly ineffective. Another round of explosions slammed into them, the fire intensifying. Sounds pretty effective to me, Sartorius said. The commander shook his head. Our hull is specially reinforced. We're essentially impervious to handheld weapons. Until they're able to decipher the heavier artillery, we're relatively safe. Of course, that's only a matter of time, isn't it? His upper lip disappeared in his mouth with a soft, sucking sound. <laughs> They haven't pulled in many ships yet, but I suppose that's to be expected. Hovering out here at the edge of the unknown regions. There's not much traffic this far out. 
he made a weak effort to point up to the cockpit, where the shuttle's instrument panel shone faintly. A myopic eye, afflicted with cataracts of energy lack. We saw how it dragged your prison barge in, Gorister said, and then, uttering a terrible, humorless chuckle that was more like a gasp. <laughs> Too bad they can't eat their own. Who? Sartoris asked. The man favored him with a wan expression that was less incredulity than outright disbelief. What? Did you actually think your inmate friends out there were the only ones aboard? Who else is there? Who <laughs> else? This time, the commander actually mustered a laugh. It sounded like a layer of dust being blown from a very old book, perhaps one that had been bound in human skin. Oh dear. You really don't have any idea what's going on, do you? Sartoris felt a stirring of irritation he didn't bother to suppress from his voice. Suppose you bring me up to speed. It started ten weeks ago, when the first tanks began leaking. What tanks? Gorister ignored him. There were those conspiracy theorists among us who still insisted it wasn't an accident, that we were all part of some larger experiment. Which I suppose is possible. Hold on, Sartoris said, sitting up to face the man straight on. Start at the beginning. The commander paused, and Sartoris realized that the deputation of skeletons sitting on either side of him had leaned forward, listening intently, as if they'd never heard this story before, despite having ostensibly lived through it. What can it matter now? Gorister said. We left Meglamine hauling top-secret freight. Experimental military-grade ordnance for the Empire. All the usual caveats. On Lord Vader's own directive. Our destination was a testing base on Congi 7, outside the Brunet system. But we never got through the mid-rim. He took a breath and let it out with great effort. At first, the breach seemed minor. And it appeared that our engineers were able to confine it. Some of our scientists were even able to study the effects it had on human physiology, the lungs and larynx in particular. We assumed that they had it contained. He paused and cleared his throat. <clears> throat> but that turned out not to be the case for long. The infection spread quickly through the entire Star Destroyer. Soon, no one was safe. Wait a second, Sartorus said. You're telling me there's 10,000 more of those nightmares staggering around out there? Oh, my goodness, no. Some of us did manage to escape, obviously. Or tried to. And a few showed signs of natural immunity. Using their blood, our medical officers were able to synthesize an antivirus. As I'm guessing yours probably did too, based on the fact that you're still here. Sartoris just grunted, not inclined to go into his own random immunity to the sickness. Gorister didn't even seem to notice. We sealed off part of the ship, he said, and injected ourselves with the antivirus. At first, it seemed like there would be enough to go around. Another thin and ghastly attempt at a smile. It didn't last as long as we'd hoped. There was more in the biolab, but of course, we couldn't get back to retrieve it. That was when the plan began to change somewhat. Of course, many of the crew were eaten before they could change over. 
torn to pieces and, well, consumed, I suppose is the word. Gorister swallowed, seeming to find something particularly distasteful in this part of his narrative. At first, we tried to gather up the remains. We put them in a waste facility, chopped them up, thought it might be a way to keep them from changing, you know. And even that isn't always successful. But in the end, we were outnumbered, and there really wasn't anything to do but run. He flashed a cold, flat glance up at Sartoris. Until they found out how to activate the tractor beam. They can think? Sartoris envisioned the screaming thing staggering around outside the ship, pounding and firing at it, almost randomly with blasters. That's crazy. Oh, it's madness, Gorister agreed, blinking at him with the mildest of curiosity. All I know is that they were waiting for us inside the hangar when we came back in. The first man out of the hatch got his head ripped off at the shoulders. He licked his lips. After that, we sealed ourselves back in, sent a distress signal, and settled in to wait. How long have you been trapped here? Ten weeks. Sartoris felt his mouth drop open. He couldn't help it. You mean, you've been canned up here inside this ship for ten weeks? There were thirty of us originally. Now we're down to seven including myself. <sighs> the commander sighed, eliminating what sounded like the last of the air from his lungs and sagged against the bulkhead behind him again. His filthy uniform was so big on his now emaciated body that it bulked up almost comically around his shoulders, like a child playing dress-up. We keep trying to make calm contact, but all frequencies are jammed. I believe that also might be a deliberate countermeasure on their part. When his eyes found Sartoris's again, they were colorless and dispassionate. The eyes of a man delivering a lecture that he'd prepared years earlier. You asked earlier how I thought they could activate the tractor beam. They learn, you see. That's part of it. Those things out there? Sartoris asked. But they're... animals. In the beginning, perhaps. But consider... The ones that changed on board the destroyer ten weeks ago don't even bother attacking this shuttle's reinforced Durasteel armor with blasters anymore. They've already grasped the fact that it doesn't work. It's the new arrivals, the inmates and prison guards, who are out there shooting at us now. And if you listen, you'll see that they've already stopped, too. He snapped his fingers, a brittle pop. That's how quickly their behavior changes. Sartoris realized he was right. The blaster fire outside the shuttle had stopped, just as Gorister had predicted. I think it has something to do with the sickness, the commander said. The way it was initially designed, they form clusters, tribes, swarms, and they communicate with one another. I'm sure you've heard it. Sartoris thought of the screaming that he'd heard, the weird cyclic quality of it back and forth, call and response in the hangar. And that way they are all able to adapt at the same time, Gorister said, as one, like a kind of system-wide upgrade. Do you see? Sartoris shook his head. What are you talking about designed? You mean somebody created all this on purpose? Gorister studied him in silence for a moment, with what might have been the tiniest of smirks. Naive, aren't you? He asked, 
I told you we were carrying top-secret weapons. How long have you served the Empire? Sartorius didn't bother to provide an answer. He'd noticed something else that bothered him even more than the smirk on the man's face. Throughout the course of their conversation, his fellow soldiers had begun edging slowly closer to him, and they were licking their lips compulsively, over and over. Sartorius squirmed back a little farther. For the first time, his gaze fell on the stack of uniforms folded neatly on the seat in the corner. What happened to the rest of your men? He asked. You must understand. Gorister's voice was soft now, no longer mocking. In fact, it was nearly sympathetic. We had ample water here inside the shuttle, but precious little food, and it's been ten weeks. It was nothing more than a simple matter of survival. We were starving, you see. Sartorius frowned. The men were getting to their feet now. It suddenly occurred to him that they might have been sitting here saving their strength until this moment. Hold it! He stood up, backing away, and felt his shoulders hit the wall behind him. We're not like them. Of course not, Gorister murmured, dismissing the idea. We drew lots, to keep things fair. We gave each man a quick, humane death. At first, we threw the remains out there. He nodded above at the emergency hatch. To those things, as if that might somehow satisfy them. But it only made them come back. So we ate the remains, too. In the end, we sucked the marrow from the bones. But none of my men felt any pain. I promise. One emaciated hand slipped into his uniform jacket and produced a small transdermal patch. And neither will you. What is that? Norbutal. Gorister whispered. A paralytic. You'll just go to sleep. And when we are rescued, the Emperor will recognize your sacrifice with the highest of honors. Sartorius started to say something else. He realized that the commander had told him there were six other men, and he only saw four of them. Then he felt a pair of hands grabbing him from behind, pinning his arms behind his back. Zahara wasn't sure how long she'd been running. Lactic acid cramped her thighs and calves, oxygen debt reaching the point where it cried out, no longer able to be ignored, and she'd lost track of where she was. The end of another protracted corridor somewhere deep in the Star Destroyer's main hangar level, but farther back. With no sense of direction and no hesitation, she guessed it was just a matter of time until something caught up with her. She stopped and leaned against the wall, temples throbbing, and whooped in a series of deep breaths. Her throat and lungs ached, and the root of her tongue had that sprained, dizzy feeling it got when she'd overtaxed herself. Counting her heartbeats, she made herself calm down. Calm down. Just calm down. She held her breath and listened for screams. Heard none. The corridor was absolutely silent. Up ahead, blocking the way, were what appeared to be stacks of crates. She started walking toward them, feeling marginally steadier now that she'd taken a rest, and stopped at the hatchway on her left, looking at the sign posted over it. Biolab 242. Authorized personnel only. Zahara glanced down at the security pad that someone had pried from the wall, dangling on stalks of variegated wires. 
with a strong sense that what she was about to do was not at all wise. She put her elbow to the hatch itself and forced it open. At first, the lab was almost reassuringly familiar. A research area, a clinical space designed for the usual flights of emotionally detached observation and interpretation. It was a great gleaming dome, white-walled and blazing with overhead fluorescent lights, the walls honeycombed with dozens of empty glass-enclosed cells. Each cell was equipped with its own research and observation workstation, not that any of them seemed to be actually working. The entire chamber smelled powerfully like antiseptic and chemicals, with an undertone of hot copper wiring. Giant ventilation fans stood in the walls, but they were all motionless which probably explained the stillness of the stagnant air. Walking forward, Zahara noticed the dead computer terminals, broken doors, and abandoned keyboards, the individual keys scattered across the high-impact durasteel floor like loose teeth. She saw a protocol droid standing in the corner, a 3PO unit, apparently broken, one golden eye flickering spastically, fingers twitching. As she got closer, she heard a low, almost inaudible whine escaping from its vocabulator. Next to it, an overturned chair lay on top of a demolished rack of syringes and vials. And she noticed a human-sized bloodstain on the wall, arms upraised, like a spirit painted in red. The workstation in front of it appeared to be operational, however. The screen half-filled with lines of text and a blinking cursor awaiting reply. It was the first functional indication she'd seen of possible communications. Tentatively, she bent forward and tapped a key. More data washed up instantly over the monitor, skimming past too fast for her to read. Then it stopped again, cursor ticking, and the wall in front of her clicked and peeled open to reveal a thick pane of glass beneath it. On the other side of the glass was another hive cell, but this one wasn't empty. Inside it, Two yellow human corpses dangled in front of her at face level, webbed to the ceiling by thick networks of wires, feeding tubes, and monitoring equipment. A pair of hideous puppets. They were both badly decayed, facial features rotted beyond any recognition, eye sockets empty. And Zahara wondered if she was looking at volunteers who had been abandoned here after whatever happened aboard the destroyer. What would it have been like, she thought being trapped in there while everyone on this side of the glass ran away. Something clicked in front of her and began to whir steadily. One of the big ventilation fans in the wall above the glass. Zahara braced herself for the blast of foul air from inside, then realized that she could feel her clothes and hair actually being sucked away from her skin. The fan was pumping air into the cell. And that made more sense. They'd have to deliver oxygen to the research subjects while they were still alive. Those chambers were probably airtight, and without the fans running, they'd suffocate in there. Which was probably exactly what happened, she guessed, once the research staff had decided to abandon the lab. Zahara felt the room stretching around her, all sense of perspective seeming to elongate on gluey strings. On the other side of the glass, the thing gaped up at her, with its sagging, grinning face, moving the rotten stumps of its legs, swaying back and forth. The air that went in, she thought. It carried my smell into them and woke them up. The other corpse had already awakened next to it. Its face twitched up and down as if sniffing her through whatever remained of its nose. Zahara started backing away as it lifted one tattered arm to grapple with the lines and wires that held it suspended from the ceiling. 
Sensing her standing there, both of the bodies started to do a jittering, swaying dance. One bumped into the other, and they both swung forward, arms outstretched, back and forth, higher and higher. Some of the monitoring wires had already pulled off, but there was one particular tube leading straight from their chests that was still connected. The gray liquid oozing inside the tube reminded her of the substance that she'd tried to dig out of Kale Longo's abdomen. She followed the tube with her eyes and saw that it connected to a set of black tanks. They were collecting it, Zahara thought. That's what this is all about. Their bodies actually produce that stuff and... Behind her, a footstep scraped inside the lab. She spun around and stared across the white space, the path between dead research workstations, and saw nothing. Her gaze fell to the broken rack of vials and syringes on the floor. Only six or seven meters away, close enough that she could probably reach it before... Before whatever came in here has a chance to get its hands on you? Do you really think so, Zahara? At the rate those things move when they're hungry? A shape emerged between two of the workstations, a foot crunching something beneath it. Zahara glimpsed it, and then it was gone again. She looked back at the syringes, her only weapon. The muscles in her calves and thighs felt so tight she thought they'd snap, the tension rising upward to grip the bones of her spine. Wham! With a cry of fright, she whirled around and looked back. One of the research subject corpses had managed to slam itself into the glass, leaving a red smear, a streaky imprint of its face and hands. She watched as it arced back in its harness of monitoring equipment, while the other corpse swung forward, smacking the glass hard with its face and hands, then shoving off again. Get to the syringes and get out of here, now. She bolted, crossing the distance in what felt like three big steps, grabbed a needle in both hands, started to stand up, and felt something move in behind her. A rich smell of decay blew in over her shoulder, like wind from a grave. She spun around, and it grabbed her. Zahara looked into its face. The sickness hadn't rotted the researcher away as badly as the corpses in the containment chamber. She could still see some of the features the way they'd looked pre-infection. The silvery-gray hair, the aquiline nose, the deep, distinguished creases of the face. A man of science. It wore a blood-grimed lab coat, one sleeve torn away at the wrist. There was a soft click as it opened its mouth and lunged for her. She rammed the syringe into its eye and jammed another into the side of its head, depressing both plungers at once. The thing went rigid, mouth wide open, and screamed. Its legs went out from under it, its entire body collapsing. As it fell writhing to the floor, Zahara moved for the exit. She was almost there when the screaming dwindled, and she heard its voice behind her. A rasping gurgle. It was trying to talk. Hating herself for it, she looked back. The thing in the lab coat was crawling blindly toward her now, both needles still protruding from its head. Somehow the injections had restored some fragile measure of its former humanity, enough for it to try to make contact. Its mouth moved up and down, making more garbled sounds she couldn't translate. Pathetic attempts at speech. It raised one hand beseechingly. It was doing something, trying to tell her, what happened here? She asked. What did you do? The thing in the lab coat produced the same mucilaginous noises more urgently. Its face worked strenuously, and it swung its arm toward the console behind her. The... of... us. What? She asked. 
It made the noises again, swung its hands with evangelical fervor, and fell over. It growled and beat its fists on the floor. Its fingers crawled and prodded, and she realized it was miming the act of writing. Gradually, with great effort, it reached up and pulled one of the syringes from its eye socket, jammed the spike against the durasteel, and started dragging it back and forth, etching out some crude type of ideograph. It made a high, desperate squealing sound as it did so, grinding the needle's tip harder into the reinforced plating. The needle snapped, and it sat up, no longer looking so weak, or so human. It was grinning at her again. Zahara realized whatever she'd done to it with the antivirus had already run its course. She looked down at the series of scratches that the thing had scraped into the floor, jagged letters like an erratic brainwave. It didn't make much sense, but had she honestly expected it to? She was still mulling that over when the thing in the lab coat jumped on her, pinning her down. She screamed. The thing clamped both hands around her throat, and she felt its cold fingers slithering, squeezing, pinching, and choking off her scream at the same time that it lowered its mouth toward her gullet. She tried to push back against it, but it was like struggling against iron manacles. The harder she fought to resist, the more constrictive its grip became. She was blacking out. What had her surgeon at Rinnell always told her about oxygen deprivation? Time is muscle. Time is brain. She already felt the heavy penumbra of blackness crowding down on her vision, muffling her hearing, tightening into an indifferent, anesthetized nothing. It ended with a metallic scraping crack. Durasteel on bone, and cold, foul-smelling liquid splashed in her hair. The pressure on her throat went abruptly weak, the dead hands falling slack and sliding off to the side. Zahara looked up, her vision coming clear. The thing's head was twisted sideways now, a surgical bone saw shoved through its neck, half buried in the gray flesh. What? Hovering behind him was a flat metallic face she couldn't believe she was seeing, even now. Waste. Her voice was barely a whisper. You came back. The 2-1-B just looked at her. I beg your pardon? You saved me. Well, yes, of course. The surgical droid said, a bit puzzled, and, seeming to remember that it was in the process of sawing the head off a thing in the lab coat, it thrust both the bone saw and the thing aside, dropping them to the floor. That creature was attempting to injure you, and per my programming at the Medical Academy in Rinnell, my prime directive is to protect life and promote wellness whenever possible. Zahara finished for him. I know. The surgical droid continued to look at her expectantly as if awaiting orders. Zahara could already see that it wasn't her 2-1-B, her waste. But she nonetheless felt a throb of gratitude, disproportionate to all reason. Of course a vessel this size would employ such a unit, and this lab would be the perfect place for it. Yet the tears in her eyes were not only tears of gratitude and relief, but recognition of a friend she'd lost, but hadn't truly lost after all. Is there anything else I can do for you? Can you... She sat up, looking around the lab again with what felt like fresh eyes. Can you tell me anything else about the research that was going on here? Very little, I'm afraid. In a strictly scientific sense, I do know that my programmers were working on an easily conveyed chemical means of slowing the normal course of decay in living tissue. 
Ideally, the virus would be able to take over nerve receptors and make the muscles fire, even after clinical death has resulted. Zahara thought of the corpses screaming at one another, linking up to form organized armies. Were there military applications? Oh, I really couldn't say. It was highly classified, and I'm strictly a surgical and scientific unit, nonpartisan in such matters, and certainly not very knowledgeable when it comes to such clandestine weapons operations. Then do you know where I can find a workstation that might still be functional? Oh, most certainly. The droid paused, and she could hear its components clicking and whirring busily beneath its torso cowling, a familiar noise that brought back another painful memory of waste. My sensors indicate that there seem to be several non-disrupted consoles available in the hangar control center. However, I am obliged to inform you that given the hostile environment, such an exposed area could prove particularly hazardous to you. I'm used to it. Very well. Would you like me to diagram the most direct route? How about one that I can get to without going into the hangar itself? Right away. And waste. It eyed her again. I'm afraid I'm... Thank you, she said, and resisted the urge to take hold of its cool metal hand and kiss it. Jumping Jedi, did we just hear that? Did that segment feel like we were being stuck on Hoth without an article of clothing? Because I would have been petrified. If you're not buzzing like a droid or circuiting from excitement, you might need to check your pulse and make sure that you're not a zombie. Because as this series unwinds, we can expect the unexpected, horrifying things that could make even Emperor Palpatine run in fear. But I think that's all for this episode. Until our next interstellar escapade, keep your blaster set for fun, and I will see you on the Sith side. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archive. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Kenai Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. Star Wars Death Trooper was read to you by Rick Washington. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>